Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more back at the beginning on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves a reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast um, is going to be to examine the climax, the falling action, uh, and the resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'm also going to weigh in on whether or not I happen to like the ending. Uh, So before I get any Further, um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the Wikipedia for, well, I'm going to actually announce which book I'm uh, covering right now. I'm covering Cujo. Um, So I'm very, very excited to talk about Cujo because if you haven't listened to my entire review of Cujo, please head back into the podcast, into the earlier earlier incarnation of the Stephen King cast um, for an in-depth review of the entirety of Cujo and my thoughts. Famously, for longtime listeners, I am pretty critical of the novel Cujo for a, a myriad of reasons that I outlined very succinctly within the, the, that particular podcast episode. It's interesting for me to go back to that particular well and focus specifically on the endings, um, the, the ending that King has crafted for this uh, man versus nature, or in this case, woman versus St. Bernard story. Um, there's been a, a lot of conversations throughout the years with my reaction to the ending of Cujo, um, and there's a couple emails that I've been sitting on um, to help get me, uh, to, that I've waited uh, on sharing online because I thought it was appropriate to uh, share those emails here on this particular episode as I discuss the ending of Cujo. Now, before I get to that, what I want to do is read the Wikipedia summary so I have a context for the ending of of Cujo. The story takes place in the setting for many King stories, the fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine. Revolving around two local families, the narrative is interspersed with vignettes from the seemingly mundane lives of various other residents. There are no chapter headings, but breaks between passages indicate when the narration switches to a different perspective. The middle-class Trentons have recently moved to Castle Rock from New York City, bringing with them their four-year-old son, Tad. Vic Trenton discovers his wife, Donna, has recently had an affair. In the midst of this household tension, Vic's advertising agency is failing, and he is forced to travel out of town, leaving Tad and Donna at home. The blue-collar Cambers are longtime residents of Castle Rock. Joe is a mechanic who dominates and abuses his wife, Charity, and their 10-year-old son, Brett. Charity wins a 5,000 lottery prize and uses the proceeds to trick Joe into allowing her to take Brett on a trip to visit Charity's sister, Holly, in Connecticut. Joe acquiesces and secretly plans to use the time to take a pleasure trip to Boston. Cujo, the Cambers' large good nature St. Bernard, chases a wild rabbit in the fields around their house and inserts his head in the entrance of a small limestone cave. A bat bites him on the nose and infects him with rabies. While Charity and Brett leave town, Cujo kills their alcoholic neighbor, Gary Purvier. When Joe goes to talk to Gary, Cujo kills him as well. Donna, home alone with Tad, takes their failing Ford Pinto to the Cambers for repairs. The car breaks down in the Cambers' dooryard, and as Donna attempts to find Joe, Cujo appears and attacks her. She climbs back into the car as Cujo starts to attack. Donna and Tad are trapped inside their vehicle, the interior of which becomes increasingly hot in the summer sun. 
During one escape attempt, Donna is bitten in the stomach and leg, but manages to survive and escapes back to the car. She plans to run for the house, but abandons the idea because she fears the door will be locked and that she will subsequently be killed by Cujo, leaving her son alone. Vic returns to Castle Rock after several failed attempts to contact Donna and learns from the police that Steve Kemp, the man with whom Donna was having an affair, is suspected of ransacking his home and possibly kidnapping Donna and Tad. To explore all leads, the state police send Castle Rock Sheriff George Bannerman out to the Cambers house, but Cujo attacks and kills him. Donna, after witnessing the attack and realizing Tad is in danger of dying of dehydration, battles Cujo and kills him. Vic arrives on the scene with the authorities soon after, but Tad has already died from dehydration and heat stroke. Donna is rushed to the hospital, and Cujo's head is removed for a biopsy to check for rabies prior to the cremation of his remains. The novel ends several months later with both the Trenton and Cambers family trying to move on with their lives. Donna has completed her treatment for rabies, her marriage to Vic has survived, and Charity gives Brett a new vaccinated puppy named Willie. A postscript reminds the reader that Cujo was a good dog who always tried to keep his owners happy, but the ravage of rabies drove him to violence. Okay, um, let me get into a, a couple emails here. So I have one uh, from Lean. Uh, who writes, Hello, Constant Reader. I am a new listener to the podcast. I own and read more than 30 novels by Stephen King, and thus he became one of my favorite authors. I've listened to some episodes and have some thoughts, some positive and some negatives. I'm going to start with the positive. Your analyses are very good. You know what you're talking about, and the love for Stephen King is real. I also love the Kingisms and the connections with the Dark Tower. Now, with the negative. My main problem with the podcast is when your subjective view takes over the analysis and thus you make assumptions or statements that aren't real or have no fact behind them. Let me be specific. In the Salem's Lot episode, you make a commentary about Ben falling in love with Susan as he arrives to town. You criticize him for forgetting about his wife so soon. The problem is you don't know if he loved her or how was their relationship. Also, the process of grief works different on each person, each with his or her own time and feelings. As you wouldn't act the same as him, you don't... Um, as you wouldn't act the same as him, you don't open to different factors affecting his actions. You just judged him. All right, so let me, let me go back. Um, in the real world, yes, people absolutely grieve their own way. And because I personally believe that this is it, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe in an afterlife. Um, the choices that you make um, to be happy, they're your choices and, and that's fine. So if someone, uh, you know, loves and loses, I, I don't judge that whoever it is for, for moving on and finding happiness. Um, I think that it is a bit different in a piece of fiction. And um, let me explain why in the case of Salem's Lot. Um, this is a gothic story. And part of the gothic uh, trope is longing and loss. Um, and I'm fine with a character moving on. I have no problem with Alan Pangborn moving on to Polly Chalmers, um, right? You know, in, in Needful Things. These things happen. Characters love, they lose, they move on, they find love again. That's perfectly fine. The, the grieving process um, led to, you know, in the case of Alan Pangborn, being open enough um, and healthy enough to engage in a healthy relationship with someone that loved him and he loved back is totally fine. I don't judge him for moving on after the, the death of his um, 
his wife and child. I think that it is different with Ben Mears because Ben doesn't have a lot of character backstory. He is defined by the, the, the loss of his wife, and it's very vaguely defined. Worse, Susan is not really a character. She is not well-defined. Um, I'm very critical of the relationship because it doesn't feel like a relationship between two characters. It is a relationship between two caricatures without without the, 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 the detail and the meticulousness that, that King will later get extremely well at, um, at crafting when it comes to crafting his characters. Um, so I don't mind if one of his characters was in a relationship loses someone and then moves on. I don't mind it. In this case with Ben, um, he is defined by you know his his the loss of his wife um, and then immediately moves on. It is immediate um, and because he isn't built up to be a character enough, um, I don't think that it generates a lot of sympathy. Um, again, like I said, King does this better. In, in those cases, I am judging this character, Ben, because Ben is not as well-rounded a character as other Stephen King characters are. Again, in the real world, you do you and be happy, and that's fine. I don't judge. Um, in this case, I'm critical of the depiction of the characterization of this particular character due to the fact that it does not live up to the depth of character that King later gets to with his other characters. Um, and I feel as though the, the love interest, I have more of an issue with the love interest of Susan because she is a very, like, very blank character and you don't feel the love. Um, it's what the plot requires, it's what the plot demands, and the characters go through the motions in this case to create a love story. But to me, it's loveless because it's all telling and it's not really showing. Uh, uh, Lean continues, in the episodes of Cujo and Pet Cemetery, you point the dark, gritty tone of the books as something bad. I, I'm gonna push back on that. I don't agree with um, my statement of, um, of Pet Cemetery. Um, I'll talk about Cujo in a second, but I think that the dark, gritty tone is needs... Anyway, I'll let him continue. Um, this is the aspect that bothers me the most. First of all, not everyone loves a positive view on everything. I love dark books and stories that have no happy endings. The world doesn't work like a fairy tale. Right now, people are dying in wars. There is a new virus, and everyday people die due to violence, drugs, or whatever. If we hear this every day, what's the problem of reading a story that reflects the world in some way? If you choose to read something that's full of happiness and joy, it's okay, but don't bash the book because it doesn't share the same... Um, view of the world. King always writes novels where the good guys win. Um, Pet Cemetery in Cujo is a rare exception where King was dark and gave us a different ending, an ending that left me thinking about what I just read. I applaud that when an author is original and surprises the reader and goes out of his comfort zone. I'd love to get more books like this instead of the same good wins over evil we get in most of his novels. You also mentioned that people get a bad impression if they read Pet Cemetery as their first King book because the book is full of death and is negative. You couldn't be more wrong. If that was true of an, a song of ice and fire, it wouldn't be famous. Um, the Watchmen or True Detective would be a failure, too, because they are too negative. That's not your cup of tea. That's okay. Um, but don't dismiss it, saying other people won't enjoy it. By the way, I assume you didn't watch Game of Thrones as you think it's too dark and too full of death. Um, okay, so I'm going to push back uh, very strongly on this um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, 
this is where you know um, Lean mentioned subjectivity versus objectivity. Um, subjectively speaking, it is hard to read Pet Cemetery, uh, but Pet Cemetery is a wonderfully crafted novel. And if you listen to my review of the mo most recent um, Pet Cemetery adaptation, I argued that it was not dark or disturbing or gut wrenching, um, gut wrenching enough. Um, it's a novel that deals with the death of a child, the death of a family, the death of hope, and the death of potential. It needs to be dark and gritty. To do otherwise would not be true to um, the premise of, of that particular novel. I can, and I believe that I did, and I apologize if I didn't do it well enough, but I can state that it affects me negatively emotionally while stating how that's an actu actually an attribute um, to the novel. Um, Similarly, Revival, which I strongly recommend, is probably one of his bleakest novels uh, to date, um, and I strongly recommend that. I just reviewed the ending of The Stand, and one of the reasons that I like the ending of The Stand, and I think that it's, it's good, is that despite the fact, spoiler alert for The Stand, um, despite the fact that it is good triumphing over evil, you know, Kai is a wheel, it all comes round again, and that starts to happen with the rise of fascism within um, the Boulder Free Zone. And I think that that is a perfect way to end it um, on that bleak spot. Hereditary um, is one of the, the most uh, upsetting, disturbing, and raw experiences that you're going to get out of a horror movie, and it's one that um, it's probably one of the best horror movies to come out in the last decade. Similarly, Midsommar. Um, is a, a very uh, dark um, story that happens to be very, very bright uh, visually. Um, and I'm a big fan. Game of Thrones, um, a huge fan of Game of Thrones for all the reasons that you listed. Um, I do apologize if I was not clear in my messaging over the subjectivity versus objectivity of dark and gritty. When dark and gritty is employed to um, create a sense of gravitas and seriousness, but it fails to um, invoke the, the emotional truth or authenticity, I tend to be critical. Um, but when dark and gritty is employed to um, reinforce authentic emotions and, and truth of a particular premise or scenario, then I am all for it. And in the case of Pet Cemetery, for it to be anything but dark and gritty. Um, I don't think that it would be um, authentic to the premise of a story that um, revolves around uh, the, the death of a family um, and the corruption of the soul and potential. So um, that's my thoughts on Pet Cemetery. Now, I, if there is obfuscation or confusion or a misunderstanding of my viewpoint, it might be due to the fact that I was as critical as I was around Cujo. Um, which I believe, I think, if I were to go back and to listen to my review, my, um, my thoughts on Cujo was that I feel that it is too long. I feel that the serial subplot um, is nonsense. Um, and I feel that it is a, a very brutal and unyielding novel that is new to Stephen King at the time of publication. And I do stand by comments like if someone reads that first or reads Pet Cemetery first and they never want to read Stephen King again. I mean, I do understand that. It is 
a hard ask for people. Similarly, like if someone sits and watches Hereditary and they never want to watch anything by Ari Aster again, I can't say no, right? It's, you know, with time being limited and the time that we spend on this world is not guaranteed, the choices that you make um, reflect what you want to consume, right? So, for instance, my wife loves true crime um, documentaries and podcasts where, you know, the worst aspects of humanity are um, shown. Right now, the, the, the trial of um, Gabriel, um, I, can't, I can't remember, but the documentary on Netflix right now um, is out and it's very popular. I can't watch it because though I can watch and listen and read um, fictional stories about the worst aspects of humanity, I have a difficult time actually engaging um, in true life crimes um, because it's too upsetting to me. Now, I would never say to my wife or anyone that listens to it, like, stop watching it, stop listening to that, because they are fine with it, just like I am fine with Hereditary, and I am fine with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I am fine with Pet Cemetery, and, and whatever. I am fine with it, and I, as strange as it is, I take, you know, some pleasure in, you know, horror. Um, but it's not for everyone. And so if Pet Cemetery is too dark and too disturbing, and you don't want to engage in a story that has to do with the death of a child, and you happen to be a young parent, it's fine. It's not for you. Um, and you have to respect that. Um, but, but, if you subjectively don't like something, doesn't mean that you have to objectively dislike it. And I think that I was pretty clear in the delineation between those two points of view for Pet Cemetery. Cujo, um, I was definitely much more critical. Um, I do get that. Okay. Um, so Lean continues, I hope that this makes my clear my main critics to the podcast. I just can't get that. While the world is a difficult place to live, you get depressed by a book's negativism or dark tone. If you can't deal with hard themes in a novel, then how do you deal with the death of a friend or a family member or getting fired or the injustice of things that happen in the world? If you don't want to read this type of book or prefer the ones where the main guy always lives and evil is defeated, that's cool. Just don't put the negativism as a negative. I have more thoughts on other books, but don't want to make this longer than it already is. Um, Lean, please write back on the other thoughts. I do appreciate this, this conversation. I think that we're in a bit of a disagreement here um, because, uh, you know, the world is a difficult place to live. And sometimes, you know, you can respond to the difficulty by strengthening yourself through hard um, content, right? But if you recognize that the world is a hard place and you need to pick me up, then I also understand that too. But again, I don't judge something um, for what it is if it happens to be negative. The quality I judge, but just because it's negative, I, I, I don't judge that for being objectively good or bad. But if you disagree with anything that I've said, please write in. And up next we have John who writes, Dear Constant Reader, I've only written in one other time when I needed to discuss my thoughts on it as an AIDS narrative and it being a symbol of representation of queerness. Um, and when I heard that you were going back to the novels to examine the endings, I had to rear my head once more. 
I wanted to speak on Cujo's ending. This is one of King's most successful endings, possibly equal to Pet Cemetery. I know that you will disagree with me on this, and to a certain extent, Pet Cemetery and Cujo are drastically different texts, but only on the surface. Underneath, in the muck and the goo, they are addressing, analyzing, and answering the theme of destruction of the American family and the ideas of the American pastoral. This is paramount for King. Cujo's approach to, the, approach to the American family, with Tad being the unfortunate victim of a mother who is afraid of her own mortality and boredom, outside of the hum of the big city, the father who is trying so desperately to bring his family into the late 20th century American dream that he, like so many others, misses that his family is broken, and Cujo himself being a symbol for that evil. The fact that Ted Tad does not make it to the other side of the Pinto is incredibly important, and the Lewis Teague um, does a giant disservice to the novel by changing the ending so that Tad lives. He cannot live because his parents are not changed. Donna and Vic are the same self-serving and disinterested people that they are at the beginning of the novel. They will inevitably remain so, so Tad's death is their reminder that their own self-obsessions are the ghosts and the monsters that haunt their home. King's unrelenting torture of Donna and Tad can only end one way, and that is with Tad's death. The movie feels cheap and Hollywood for allowing the small boy to survive because it is both non-logical and non-thematic. In the same way, Pet Cemetery is a text about the destruction of the American pastoral at the hands of a self-obsessed parental figure. Oddly, the mothers in both of these texts are the ones who are disconnected from their children, and the fathers come off more connected and caring for their sons. Maybe King is trying to create the happy father-son relationship he never had. Gage must die in order to point out the obsessive and destructive modern family of the 80s. The children are always victims because they cannot defend themselves, and I think Tad would have approached Donna and Vic with as much malice as Gage went for Lewis and Rachel, if not with more. In the end, the death of children is tragic, and even in a literary sense, it is traumatic. That being said, this is why it is as powerful as it is and why King is able to use children as the epitome of the defenseless victim that is the American pastoral and the American family when confronted with adults who are self-involved while still being loving and protective as Vic and Lewis are, but self-serving nevertheless, Donna and Rachel. Just some thoughts. Thanks for still putting out this podcast. It is a great help to us constant readers who see King as more than just a popular novelist. You've even inspired me to reread the canon in order, and because of this, I'm working on a book-length project. Um, that examines the role queerness plays in the King canon. It's everywhere. I'd love to talk more about King if you ever have time. Long days and pleasant nights, John. John, thank you so much. I think this was a fantastic email, and I think that it, it, it definitely um, points out things that I, I never noticed. It's, it's great, and it's perfect timing for this particular episode. So thank you so much, and as always, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, so in order to talk about the ending of Cujo, we're going to talk about it from the climax on, which is when George Bannerman dies. Um, that is when Donna finally has to admit to herself that outside help will not be able to save her son in time, so she must battle the dog herself if either of them are going to live. The internal conflict of her choices collapses due to the external conflict of the woman versus the dog. The falling action, therefore, is Donna fighting Cujo, killing him, Vic arriving but discovering that Tad has died, and the resolution is Donna and Vic attempting to salvage their marriage together. So, the criteria for a good ending. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the book? Yes! Um, I'm going to get more into this, into the, the theme, but as I stated in my review of the novel, this is a mean little motherfucker of a book. It's punishing on its characters and on the reader. It's a brutally hot day. You feel stuck in your car along with Donna and Tad, and you'll never look at a St. Bernard the same way again. 
Though you might not like Donna, you can't help but root for her because despite the adultery that she's committed, she doesn't deserve her fate, and her son certainly shouldn't pay for her sins. As I stated in my review, the entire serial subplot is wildly stupid and takes away from what is a very simple and gripping premise of the characters locked in the car with a monstrous hell beast ready to devour them should they attempt to flee on the hottest day of the year. It's a wonderful premise, and Donna's gradual stripping away of civility leaves her with her most primal urges to fight, to survive, to save her son. It's a brutal book with a punishing conclusion for its characters. King does not mince their fates or attempt to steer them towards a happy ending. Tad dies, Donna is traumatized, the kind-hearted sheriff is brutally murdered. Does it successfully rep up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Yes, I have long been on record saying that there's too much plot in what should be a simple story of a desperate woman fighting off a rabid dog. And by and the time spent with the asinine serial subplot is as out of place as the mafia was in Peter Benchley's Jaws. With that said, the conclusion hinges on the conflict between Cujo and Donna, and this portion of the plot is what King focuses on. The terror, the horror, the tragedy that he is able to wring out of the end of his book comes from Donna's final stand in the grass, broken baseball bat in hand, not whether or not Vic is going to successfully save the serial account. Though it's a waste of a page, it's not enough to detract from the thrilling conclusion to the novel. Does the conclusion serve the theme, the symbolisms, and the motifs? It's a story about rage and a bored housewife who believes that she's in the wild. She truly discovers what the wild is like when she's literally assaulted by a wild animal. On the outskirts of society, she must fight for her life and the life of her son. Stripped from all pleasure and comfort, she discovers the animal within herself and defeats the one that is terrorizing her. If adultery is the giving of oneself over to the more base levels of oneself, recognizing the primal need for pleasure and mating can override the sensibilities of civilized companionship and promise, then having the main character have to face the primal urges in a primal conflict provides an appropriate thematic resolution to the story. And just like adultery can devour a marriage, the thematic giving way to the bestial parts of herself leads to the death of her child, the physical manifestation of her marriage. Are there other factors that we need to consider? I don't think that we can minimize the true horror of what King presented with the conclusion of this book. Yes, he has put children in peril in the pages of The Shining and Firestarter and will famously kill off the children in It, Black House, Dr. Sleep, The Outsider, The Institute, here on out. But here, Tad died from the circumstances in which the conflict had placed him. Terrified, hot, dehydrated, baked to death in a car. It's an incredibly upsetting ending. Here, King is showing that he can go for it. We've had main character deaths as far back as Carrie, but this one's different. This isn't a child being murdered by a clown or by a supernatural force. It's a child locked in a car on a hot day, terrorized by a rabid dog. It's the worst aspects of nature rearing its ugly head to wipe an innocent child off of the earth. It's raw, brutal, and mean. I'm not placing any uh, judgmental statement on it. I'm simply stating very concretely what occurs here. And I think that that is a factor that when discussing this novel, um, the rawness and the brutality um, and the bleakness of this ending is something that I believe must be discussed. Okay. I've been on record disliking um, Cujo um, because, as I've stated before, um, I think that it, it would work very well as uh, a novella um, 
there's too much plot padding that I think that can be excised from it. Um, the serial subplot, um, I, I think it's just not, it, I, I just think that it tracks from the purity of what the novel can be. Um, so um, do I like the ending? Yes, I do like the ending. For all of my criticisms, criticisms against the book, those criticisms don't apply to the ending. With everything that I had discussed about the ending so far in terms of characters, in terms of themes, in terms of um, other factors, in terms of plot, um, I think that King is able to wrap a bow on everything that we just mentioned. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good ending. I think it's an ending that I both happen to like and I think that it is a good ending. So. Um, that is, I don't know if you expected otherwise, but I, I think that um, King is definitely zooming along. So right now, um, Carrie, uh, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, The Stand, and now Cujo. Um, King is seven for seven uh, in both regards. Um, of me liking the ending and it having a good ending. And remember that this is, um, this whole experiment is, is based off of a lot of criticism that uh, King receives about the endings of his novels. And so far, he's seven for seven in, in being able to deliver a solid ending to his books that this particular reader happens to like. If you have disagreements on anything that I have said thus far in this episode or in any of the previous episodes, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com um, because I, I, I like having this conversation. Like the, the, the email that I got from Lean, um, you know, I, I really, you know, I'm appreciative of, of him um, writing in, um, you know, because it, it allowed for good discourse. Um, I didn't. I don't fully agree with the things that he wrote, but I do appreciate him taking the time to write in, and I look forward to any response uh, from him that, that I might get. Um, and if anyone else has thoughts on what I said or if I'm factually wrong with how I remember um, what I said in, in previous episodes, please, you know, write in, you know, um, and, and share with me what you think. All right, everyone. So I'm going to be honest. Uh, by the time this comes out, um, it will be a couple weeks after the, the recording date. So I'm recording this um, uh, in uh, mid, mid to late March um, right now um, as we all start to navigate what uh, normalcy looks like during the midst of uh, the coronavirus. So um, guys, just stay safe. Um, socially distance yourselves. Don't, don't put yourself or others in harm's way. Um, and just take care. Take care of yourselves. Um, enjoy the Stephen King cast. Enjoy a good book. Enjoy time spent with your loved ones um, on the couch and in your house. Get creative. Be creative. Now is a time to explore creative um, options and creativity. So if you've been meaning to write that book, hey, you know what? Why don't you give it a shot? Okay, everyone. Um, I will be back next week uh, to discuss the gunslinger okay i'm excited to talk anytime i get to talk about the dark tower um i'm excited to do so so um come back next week where i talk about uh spoiler alert uh, how much i enjoy and how good <laughs> the ending of the gunslinger is okay guys so 
Um, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M O O N spells Stephen King cast. My best friend.